Good morning. Great to, great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We began a series last week in the book of Hebrews that we're, uh, we're coming to the book of Hebrews and asking this question, is Jesus enough? And uh, we're going to look at roughly uh, one chapter a week between now and Christmas in the book of Hebrews. The challenge I'm finding is that um, each chapter of Hebrews is probably um, needs about four sermons to really unpack all that's going on there. So um, we're going we're gonna, to um, try to not do four sermons and just, just do one this morning. So, um, if you're following along in one of the blue church Bibles, you can find Hebrews chapter 2 on page 1001. Let me invite you to stand with me, and we're going to give our attention to God's Word, reading Hebrews 2. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love this. He's writing the Bible, and he's like, it's in the Old Testament somewhere. He forgets where it is. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death, death for everyone. For it was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, would you help us? We have read, um, these are majestic words, and yet, I I suppose for many of us, it probably just rolls over us. Uh, There's so much going on in this passage. God, would you give us ears to hear what you're saying? Would you enlarge our, uh, our minds to understand? Uh, would you fill our hearts so that we can behold Jesus as he truly is? We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. The message of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than everyone and everything else. And so uh, the question that I want you to ask and that we're going to keep coming back to is this. Is that enough for you? Is Jesus the one who is better than everyone and everything? Is he enough for you? Many years ago, uh, through a wonderful um, confluence of circumstances, Ashley and I were able to go on vacation in Ireland. We were, we were living in Scotland at the time, and so Ireland's not that far away. And um, my parents paid for the whole thing and met us there, and <laughs> so it was, it was great. And we, we spent a little bit of time in Dublin, but then we, we drove down to the southern part, the southern tip of the island, and uh, we spent some time in County Kerry. And we were staying in this hotel, and one day most of the family wanted to go play golf. And um, since I don't prefer to spend four hours um, very, very frustrated. We, we did something else. And so Ashley, uh, who's my wife, and uh, my sister and I went horseback riding. And there was this opportunity to go horseback riding on the beach in Ireland. And so we got on these horses and kind of rode down this dirt trail and out onto the beach. And we came around a corner and we could just all of a sudden got this panoramic vista of uh, these, the green hills of Ireland. Um, if you've never been to the British Isles, there, there are shades of green that you cannot fathom. Um, and if you, unless you've lived in a place where it rains about 300 days a year. Uh, and it, it was just breathtaking. And, and I remember seeing this view and just kind of, you know, this, just getting this lump kind of caught in my throat. And as I was just, I had my breath taken away by the, the glory of, of the scenery, um, my sister, the same thing was happening to my sister. My sister said to our guide, I just can't believe how beautiful it is. And our guide, who you know, lived there, said, her response was, you know, I forget how beautiful it is here. And it's only when somebody from outside comes and kind of has that reaction that I'm reminded of just what a stunningly beautiful place I live. And I wonder if the same thing is true for us. I mean, we know that this happens uh, even just in that way. I mean, we live, if you live in Orange County, we live in a beautiful place, and yet we complain about the traffic, (laughs) right? Uh, We move into a new house, or we buy a new car, and, you know, immediately there's this burst of excitement and enthusiasm, and yet it doesn't take long before we want the bigger one, or the newer one, or the shinier one. Um, awe and wonder in our world quickly turn into something commonplace and ordinary. And we need somebody from outside of our ordinary routines to come in and remind us of just how stunning and beautiful and awe-inspiring life often is. And the same thing is true of Christianity. 
I've been a Christian since I was, I don't know, seven or ten years old. And um, while I often kind of come back to the Bible and, and you know, ask the question, can this really be true? Often, right? At the same time, I have to admit that I don't really know what it's like to live as an adult without, without believing that the Bible is true. And it can become uh, so mundane, so ordinary. Uh, can become so just yawn-inducing. And that's one of the reasons why I'm always so eager for us as a church to be uh, reaching out to people who are far from God uh, and far from His church because nothing reinvigorates my faith uh, as much as seeing somebody reading the Bible and, and seeing the, the gospel kind of do its work in somebody for the first time. It's, uh, it's awe-inspiring, and we need somebody from outside to, uh, to come in and remind us um, of how incredible Christianity really is. Uh, maybe you're a Christian, and yes, you believe that the Bible is true, and uh, you say, sure, Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, I believe all of that. And yet in our day-to-day life, it seems like, uh, you know, it doesn't seem that important. It seems relatively mundane. It doesn't seem that awe-inspiring. Sure, Jesus rose from the dead, but what I really need is a hefty raise. What I really need is a good vacation. Um, Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or uh, you're considering the claims of Jesus, or you're not really sure where you stand, and we just say, I'm so glad that you're here. But maybe you're you're curious about Jesus, or you're you're skeptical uh, that he could really be that good or that important. And you hear Christians talking and, and saying ridiculous things like Jesus is the best and most important thing in the world. And you're like, he's interesting. It's hard to see how he could be that. So, maybe Jesus is good, but is he really enough? Uh, surely my life could never be complete without something more. That is the exact question that the orig- original audience of the book of Hebrews uh, was facing. Uh, we don't know a lot about who they were, but we know just from the content of the letter that they, were, um, they had a background in Judaism. And they had embraced Jesus. They had become Christians, but now under persecution, uh, they were tempted to just kind of go back into their former way and leave Jesus, uh, leave Jesus behind. Under the normal wear and tear of life, they were tempted to give up on Jesus because he didn't really seem like he was enough. And so the author of Hebrews writes to them like the voice of someone from outside saying, this is really glorious. This is truly breathtaking. Take another look at who Jesus really is. You've let the extraordinary become ordinary. Don't give up on Jesus. Take another look. That's what he's saying. That's why he says in this passage, and you hear this phrase, don't neglect such a great salvation. And so this morning what I want to do is Uh, Look at what he says in this passage. He gives three reasons why this is such a great salvation. Um, What is so amazing about Jesus? Why is this such a great salvation? In chapter 2, he gives three reasons, and I want to explore those. But I want you to track with me to the end, because I'm going to finish this morning by giving you a really practical, tangible thing you can do, you can take home with you. So hold on with me. I also feel like I need to say, you're going to be a little bit underwhelmed when we get there. (laughs) 
hold on, it's gonna be really great. Just don't get, you know, just. It's gonna be, how's that for a cliffhanger? Why is this such a great salvation? Three reasons that the writer of Hebrews tells us. Uh, and the first is, um, this is such a great salvation. We have such a great salvation because we have a champion. Uh, the, the first chapter of Hebrews, uh, the author starts off by, it's really clunky to have to talk about the author, but we don't know who he is, okay? Uh, so bear with me. <laughs> but the, the author talks about uh, the divinity of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and he says that Jesus is the, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. What he's saying in chapter 1 is uh, Jesus doesn't just look like God, but he actually is God. Um, and so he starts off with this grand, you know, kind of exalted description of who Jesus is. And then in chapter 2, he kind of flips to the other side of the coin, and he talks about the humanity of Jesus. Um, the humanity of Jesus. And so he says in uh, verse 10, he says that Jesus, in, in the, we're reading the ESV uh, translation. Uh, in this translation, it says that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Or if you're, um, if you're looking at other translations, I might say the author of our salvation. Or the old King James said that Jesus was the captain of our salvation. Um, the, the word in Greek is the word archagon. And it means prince or leader or champion. Uh, it's somebody who goes ahead, but somebody who actually uh, accomplishes something on behalf of those he is leading. Yesterday, I was at Selma's. I was uh, working on my sermon Saturday afternoon while the Dodger game was on at Selma's. And in the eighth inning, uh, Justin Turner hit a two-run home run. And the Dodgers took the lead 4-3 over the Brewers in the second game of the uh, National League uh, Championship Series. And a bunch of middle-aged men sitting in a sports pub in Ladera Ranch started cheering and said, We did it! We did it! We did nothing, right? But our champion, Justin Turner, hit a home run. And we took the credit for it. And that is what is happening here. Um, Maybe the classic example of what it looks like to be a champion you see in the Old Testament is the story of David and Goliath. You know what, what's happening in that story? Uh, you've got Goliath, who's this giant, and um, the people of God, the Israelites, are going to battle against the Philistines. And they say instead of just going to war and we'll all just slaughter each other, let's each send out our champion, a champion who will fight for us. Uh, and so the Philistines send out Dave, uh, Goliath, and he is this giant, and so nobody will fight him until this little shepherd boy, David, comes. And he is too weak. Uh, he can't even move in the armor that the king gives him, and so he goes out, um, and he wins the battle. And it's this picture. I mean, it happens, but it's pointing forward to our ultimate champion who fights our battle and wins the victory on our behalf. This is the message of Christianity. The gospel or the good news is that we have a champion who fights on our behalf and who has won the victory for us. And no matter how many times I say that or how many times we hear that, we have to keep saying it because it does not seem to sink in for us. Uh, this past week, 
I've been inviting people to read the Bible with me. I'm going to say more about that later. But um, it's been surprising, the response that I've got. Um, and I, I, I asked a friend who uh, is a person who's been around Christians. He's been around churches for a long time. And I said, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm starting to do this thing where I'm just asking three or four guys to read the Bible. We're just going to read a chapter of the Bible every day. Would you do it with me? And um, even though he he's kind of has this maybe culturally Christian background, he said, what is in that thing? <laughs> is it just a bunch of rules about how to be a good person? And um, or another, another thing, um, you know, a way this plays out. Several years ago, before I went to seminary, I was working on a bank. And um, I was talking to just kind of... You know, when, when you tell people you're going to seminary, all of a sudden you become this lightning rod for everybody's issues with, with anything. <laughs> and this woman's like, why, do you do, what do you, like, why would you go to church and just sit there and talk about what's a sin every week? Like, what, yeah, why would you go to church if all you do is every week you come in and be like, is this a sin? Yeah, it's just next week. Is this? A, yes. Really fun, right? Great news. Um, no, the Bible is not a book about what we must do to earn God's favor. The Bible is a book about our champion who has earned God's favor on our behalf in order to make us acceptable in God's sight, to reconcile us to him. Christianity isn't about our sin and how to avoid it. It's about the good news that our champion has been victorious over our sin. He has earned the victory, and we get the credit. And so there's something incredibly right about a bunch of middle-aged dudes in a sports bar cheering, we did it when their champion has been victorious on their behalf. The only tragedy, the only tragedy is that often it stops with the game, right? We have a champion who has won the ultimate battle, and in him we gain the victory. We have to understand this point, because if we don't understand that this is the essence of Christianity, the rest of it will never make sense to us. It'll never make any sense unless you understand that Jesus earns the victory and you get the credit. Christianity will never make sense to you. Secondly, we have such a great salvation because we have a champion who is like us. We have a champion, but secondly, we have a champion who is like us. Verse 14 says this, Since since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one who has existed forever and is uh, incomprehensible in his glory, the one who radiates the goodness of God, the one who doesn't just uh, tell us what God is like, but is God himself. He became like us. Uh, He became like us. He comes, he takes on our flesh to become like us. Then if you look at verses 11, 12, 13, you see over and over again these words of brothers or children um, talking about about the way that we relate to Jesus. Uh, Why is that? Well, it's saying the uh, author of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah, which talk about the Messiah saying that he is our brother. So why does that matter? Well, what it means is this. This is such a great salvation because we have a champion who is like us, and a champion who is with us. I've, um, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but 
When I was 13 years old, my grandparents had this thing where all of their grandkids, they took us on a European cruise when we were 13. I'm conveying the impression that I just go on luxury vacations. <laughs> I've just realized that. Um, <laughs> hopefully nothing else is coming about my world travels. Um, my grandparents took me on this cruise, and there's this middle, you know, this cruise is like, I'm 13, there's one other kid my age, everybody else is... Uh, significantly older than us, except one couple on their honeymoon. And the guy in this couple who's on his honeymoon, his name was Sean Astin. Uh, you know who he is? He was um, Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings. Now, this was before The Lord of the Rings, but he was Rudy. He was in Memphis Bell. He was in Goonies. And um, so me and my other, like, teenage friend, uh, we decide to write a letter to Sean Astin, and we slip it under his his like stateroom door and we invited Sean Astin to play blackjack with us and so one you know evening we sit down at this table with Sean Astin and his wife on their honeymoon who looks like she really does not want to be sitting there with two 13 year old kids and we play blackjack and I won like seven bucks playing blackjack against Sean Astin and um Okay, it's funny, whenever I tell that story, somebody comes up to me and says, is that really true? Yes, like, I don't make this stuff up. Um, but what I like about that response, is that really true? Is that, I mean, we, we isn't it so crazy? Like, Samwise Gamgee, like, I sat there with him. And he was just an ordinary guy. Like, he wasn't that good at blackjack. He got beat by 13-year-olds. Um, he's, he's like me. He was... Uh, he, 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 uh, this happened 25 years ago, but it still sounds incredible uh, because um, it's this idea that this person who was great, who was famous, he liked me, and he was, he was with me. And Hebrews is telling us something far more incredible, that God became like you, that he came to be with you. He ate with us. He walked in our midst. He took on flesh to be with us. He's like us. Now that is incredible, but there is something even more incredible. We see specifically how he became like us in verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, the champion of their salvation, perfect through suffering. How did Jesus become like us? He became like us by becoming, uh, don't get confused about the word perfect, it means mature, or complete through suffering. Um, there, there's a sense, isn't there, in which we can never really trust somebody uh, who, who doesn't suffer. Uh, we can never really trust somebody who appears to, we can maybe admire somebody, but we can never really trust somebody uh, who isn't vulnerable, who doesn't struggle um, who hasn't suffered. I have a friend who has just sort of hit a, uh, a wall professionally. He's just, um, yeah, not doing well. And uh, this last week I was talking with a mutual friend and, and I was asking this one friend what's, what's going on in the life of our other friend. And uh, saying, you know, he, what happened? He's, he's so gifted, he's so capable. And, and our mutual friend said, well, he's a control freak. <laughs> And it was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, and yeah, I don't mean this in any way disrespectful, my friend who I love and care about. But there is this sense in which, in trying to be in control, 
sort of float above the fray, that his strength is actually the thing that has nipped him in the rear in the end. Suddenly it all makes sense that the desire to be in control actually becomes our undoing. Um, another example why we have to, why Jesus had to suffer. I have a, uh, a friend who's a, a businessman. He's been a, a donor, a very generous supporter of our church plant. And whenever I go meet with him, he always tells me the same thing. He always says, you need to fail more. And, and sometimes I'm like really offended. I'm like, dude, I'm trying to not fail this thing. And he says, the more, the more often you fail, the more you're going to learn. You're, and, and what he's saying is there are things that you can only learn through suffering. See, it's only through suffering that you can grow in both boldness and humility at the same time. You can grow in one or the other through, you know, success or, I guess, through failure too. But it's really only through suffering that you learn uh, humility and boldness, that you become gentle while becoming wise. Um, another example somebody said to me this week he said uh, I love coming to church is fine but what I really love is when you talk about how you're struggling he said that to me why and he said when you talk about how you're struggling then I know it's not just pretty words but that you actually believe these things that you're saying to us When we see someone who appears to have it all together, we can admire them from a distance. But the only people who are both great and approachable are those who have suffered. Verse 18. Why do you suffer? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What this means is that whatever you are going through in Jesus, you have a God who understands because he has suffered. You have a God who has become like you. He is like you in every way except without sin. When you face temptation, he understands what it is like. When you feel like no matter how hard you work, your work is frustrating. He understands. When you're struggling with sickness and disease, he understands. I feel like that could come across as such a trite saying, but this is no small thing because think of, I mean, this is, this is what is unique about Christianity. No other world religion says that God suffers. Eastern religions teach that God is an impersonal force who is incapable. I mean, he's not a person. He couldn't suffer. Like Star Wars, how could the Force suffer? Um, other Western religions say that God is above our suffering. Uh, other religions suggest that um, that to even even the, men, the the idea that God could suffer is sacrilegious, is blasphemous. Only Christianity shows God with his hands in the dirt. Only God, only Christianity shows God jumping into our mess. Exposing himself uh, to harm. Only Christianity shows God getting into the arena with us. And it's only because he is like us and with us that Jesus, our champion, is able to deliver us. And that's the third thing you have to see in this passage. We have such a great salvation because we have a champion who conquers 
We have a champion who destroys sin and death and the fear of death. Uh, Look down at verses 14 and 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now that is not the way that we usually talk, is it? If you this week ran into an old friend and you said, hey, how have you been? It's great to see you. And he said, you know, I've been suffering under the fear of death and lifelong slavery. You'd be like, wow, that is a bummer. (laughs) Um, We don't really talk like that. Um, We don't talk about the devil. Seems out of date. Seems like, really, the devil? Come on. Um, Except maybe at Halloween when it's cute. Trying to explain to one of my boys this week why he wasn't going to be the devil for Halloween. Because it's not cute. We don't talk like this, but the truth is that we should. Uh, Because it is an accurate description of the lives that we live. And not acknowledging the reality of what's going on in our lives, that we live under the fear of death, and therefore we live in lifelong slavery. We still experience that, and so we try to explain it in other ways. Um, But we shouldn't. We should call it what it is. Um, that, That describes the world that we live in. And it describes it both on the cosmic level and it describes it on the individual level. Um, We live in a world where there is real evil. This week I saw a headline that said this. Hundreds of dead baby girls have been found in a trash dump in Pakistan. Okay, There is no word for that other than evil. And we live in a world where those sort of headlines don't shock us because we see them every day, every week. That is evil. But we also experience that on a personal level. Uh, I heard a, a friend was saying this. He said, uh, in, in a woman's Bible study, the leader asked the, the women in this Bible study to write down three adjectives that describe them. And the two most common adjectives in this group of young, mostly young moms were anxious and exhausted. Anxious and exhausted. Now, why would young moms describe themselves as anxious and exhausted? Because they're trying to raise children in a world that is dangerous. And no amount of effort um, safeguards our children from the danger of the world that we live in. And so we're anxious that something's going to happen. And we're exhausted because there's always something more to do. We're never done. No matter what we do, there's always something else that we could do. We see that, you know, not just with regard to parenting. We see that in regard to, like, every aspect of life. We see that in our relationships. We see that in our work. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice if when you did good work, you put together a plan, you worked the plan, that you see the results of the plan? Like, A plus B equals C. Come on, like, let's make this happen here, people. That's the way I want the world to work, but it's not, it's frustrating. We have a good plan, we do good work, and we don't see the results that we expect. Why? Because we live in a world that is under the curse of fear and death. Or in relationships, um, 
you know, wouldn't it be nice if you never hurt somebody without trying? Like, just that. Wouldn't that be great? If the only time you actually hurt somebody was when you were trying to be mean to them. Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where two people, as long as they both meant well, never misunderstood each other, never hurt each other, always agreed, but the world doesn't work that way. Doesn't happen. Work is frustrating. Relationships are hard. Why? Because we live under the threat of death and are subject to lifelong slavery. And Jesus, our champion, has come to set us free. We can go to him. We can rest in what he has done for us. Our family has been reading, um, I've been, mostly I've been reading to our kids, the Chronicles of Narnia. And, um, you know, everybody I think knows, like, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobes, the most famous one. Uh, but we just this week finished reading The Silver Chair, which I think is the weirdest book in, um, in that series. And The Silver Chair is about um, Prince Rillian, and he has gone missing. And so Aslan, the great lion, calls Jill and Eustace into Narnia and teams them up with this marshwiggle named Puddleglum to go and find the long-lost prince. And they discover him finally in the underworld, in this like underground world, where the prince um, has really been kidnapped and placed under the spell of an evil witch. And what they discover in... Um, in the story is that the evil witch has promised that she will make Rillian great and that she will make him the ruler over a country of his own and her minions are tunneling up under the country where they are about to go and break into the overworld and fight a battle and then they will install Rillian as the king of this country and when Rillian is set free from the, the, uh, the evil spell that the witch has placed him under and they, 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 dis- they break out of the underworld, Rillian says, it says of Rillian, he had never dreamed that the country of which she would make him king, king in name but really a slave, was actually his own country. They were going to break free into Narnia, and the queen would make him the king of Narnia under her command when he was really the rightful king of that country. And that is a picture of you and me. God has created us to have dominion over this earth. And yet we think that we can get it through slavery to one who holds the fear of death over us. That is a picture of you and me living in a world that is frustrating where good intentions aren't enough, where honest work doesn't always pay off, where we hurt each other by accident and on purpose. We live in a world under the fear of death, and Jesus, our champion, has come to set us free from slavery. How does he do that? Well, verse 17 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, that word propitiation is not a word you're going to drop into conversation this week, but it is so important because propitiation means sacrifice of atonement. Uh, Jesus set us free from slavery by becoming a slave. Um, 
He set us free from death by dying himself. The power of sin is broken by sacrifice. In the silver chair, the prince is under this evil spell, and um, there's this weird scene where Jill and uh, Eustace and Puddleglum get to see the prince when he is, he, he says that for one hour every day he is, uh, he is manic, he is in this state where he is not in his true self, and they're able to be there with him. And, it's, and they discover in the process of this that it's, act, that it's, it's the inverse of that. <laughs> that it's actually, this is the hour in which he is sane, and there's this fire that somehow generates this enchantment that is over him, and Puddleglum sticks his foot into the fire and is burned and is badly hurt um, in order to set the, set the prince free. Now, that, that's kind of a weird fairy tale um, picture of what's going on, but why, C.S. Lewis is describing in this a powerful truth that the power of evil and sin can only be broken by a champion, one who is like us in every way and yet who sacrifices himself in order to pay the penalty for the curse that we are under. And that is what the cross of Jesus is all about. We have a champion who is like us, and through suffering, destroyed sin and death to set us free. And that is why we have such a great salvation. So the question then is, so what? What do we do? Uh, Hebrews 1 and 2, I think, are written mostly just to say, this is who Jesus is, and to cause us to stand back and say, wow, that is, that is incredible. That is who Jesus is. He is fully God. He's fully man. He did that for us. But what do we do? And so I want to finish with um, where Hebrews 2 begins. Where the author says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Those words drift and neglect, I think, are incredibly powerful and insightful. Very rarely does somebody reject Jesus. Very rarely does somebody turn their back and walk away. But the words drift and neglect are more often what happens. Think about the way that drift happens. Have you ever been at the beach with your kids and they're playing in the waves and before you know it, they're 50 yards down the beach? And you've got to go find them and bring them back and say, stay in front of me so I can keep an eye on you. What do you have to do in order to drift? Nothing, right? All you have to do is just not try to not drift. What do you have to do to stay in the same place? You have to pay much closer attention, right? We have to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. I'm going to say something that may sound kind of strange to some of us, and yet I promise it will be very helpful. It's easy for us who are Christians to think, I would never drift because I believe in Jesus, and I am never going to change my mind. And so we're not going to reject him. But it is easy for us to neglect him and therefore drift slowly away from him. 
And the warning of Hebrews is that we'll slowly drift away, very, very slow, almost imperceptibly. And so if we want to avoid drifting, if we want to avoid neglecting such a great salvation, we've got to pay much closer attention to what we've heard because we tend to think that our beliefs are solid, but the truth is beliefs are important, but our beliefs are shaped and formed by what we actually do. I mean, think about this. If you decide that you're going to run a marathon, you make a plan, and then you set the alarm, and you get up every morning, and you run, right? Um, But if you hit snooze, if you hit snooze and sleep in, like one day, it's not going to make a difference, right? But if hitting snooze becomes the regular practice, the belief that you are going to run a marathon is not actually going to become reality for you, right? It is through the practice of getting up early and working out that we are shaped into people who can run. And if we choose not to follow through on those practices, well, then we won't run a marathon. And over the years, Christians have have talked about the means of grace, prayer and scripture, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, of of being present regularly to worship uh, in church and to take part in fellowship as, as the means that God uses to communicate his grace to us. If you want to experience God's grace, if you want to experience such a great salvation, if you don't want to drift away from Jesus, then you've got to regularly make it a practice to put yourself in the place where God has promised to show up in his word, in prayer, in the life of his people, the church. Um, This week, like I said, I've been inviting people to read the Bible. some of our other ministry leaders have been, have been doing that too. And it's, it's not surprising. It's a little bit surprising, I suppose. But mostly the response that I've gotten is, uh, I've said, would you just read, read a chapter of the Bible with me every day? And we'll text each other and, and just share what God is teaching us. And most of the response I've gotten is, I'll get back to you on that. Now, let me think about that. And let me be clear. I'm not thinking of any one individual when I say this. And I don't say this in judgment or condemnation. But that is what drifting looks like. That is what drifting looks like when we are invited to, to read the Bible together and to turn around and say, well, I don't, I don't know. We're not rejecting it. We're just neglecting it. doesn't mean that you have to do that or I hate you. I didn't say that. So here's the question. How do we avoid drifting? Because we are all prone to it. We're all prone to it. And simply going, okay, I resolve on October 14th, 2018, I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to get my rear end to church and I'm going to figure out how to pray. And gosh darn it, I will do this. No, how do we, how do we avoid drifting? We have to come back and rediscover what a great salvation we have. We have to listen. We have to put ourselves in the place where God has promised to show up in order to hear again the story of what a great salvation we truly have. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Antique Roadshow. I actually have never seen the Antique Roadshow, this TV show, but a friend sent me this clip uh, about the Navajo blanket. And um, it's this story of this man, you know the Antique Roadshow, people bring in their junk and every once in a while it turns out to be worth something. 
And uh, there's this episode where there's this man named Ted, and he, Ted is kind of an older man, very simple man. And he's got this Navajo blanket, and it's hanging up there, and um, the appraiser is looking at it, and, and he says, Ted, um, Ted, I don't know if you noticed, but when you brought this blanket in here, did you notice that I actually had to catch my breath? And Ted said, yeah, I, I did notice that. And, um, and, and he kind of talks about the, where this Navajo blanket came from and you know, what a, how it was made. And then he said, Ted, this is the most unique thing that I have ever seen come into the road show. And then he said, Ted, are you a wealthy man? You can kind of tell before he asked what the answer to that was. I mean, Ted just seems like, you know, just a very simple man. Ted said, no, I mean, no, I'm not a, I'm not a wealthy man. The, uh, the appraiser said, Ted, on a really bad day at auction, this blanket would be worth $350,000. He said, on a good day at auction, this blanket would be worth over half a million dollars. And Ted takes off his glasses and begins to weep. And he said, this was my, my grandparents were just poor farmers. And this blanket has been draped over the back of a chair in my home for years. And the, the, the question that I want to leave you with is this. How do you think Ted carried that blanket out of the convention center that day? You know, it, it had been sitting on a chair where any number of people could have just spilled anything on it for years, right? And maybe he walked in there with it slunk over his shoulder. Who knows? I can promise you that he walked out of there care, treating it with care. The appraiser said to him, Ted, what you have here is a national treasure. And what I want you to hear is you have in your possession a treasure. And maybe we have neglected it. Maybe you're here and you would say, I've never really read uh, the Bible. I've never really watched such a great salvation. I'm going to invite you to just read it. I mean, there's Bibles around here. Like, take one of them if you don't have one. If you need help, like, this is why we're here, is to come alongside you and help you read the Bible. My son came to me a couple weeks and said, Dad, can you help me read the Bible? Like, of course. That's why we're here. And if you end up rejecting it, at least you'll have like reasons of your own instead of the ones that everybody else has for rejecting it. <clears throat> but maybe you're a Christian and you would say, I believe in Jesus. But so often it doesn't seem like there's much power in my life. It doesn't seem that important in the day-to-day -day realities of life. So we have to pay much closer attention because God has promised to show up when we give our attention to his word, when we pray, when we show up for worship and fellowship together. This is such a great salvation. So let's pay much closer attention to it. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews and all of its uh, just rich and I pray, God, that you would so move in us that we would walk out of here the way Ted walked out of that convention center. 
realizing that we have this thing that we haven't thought much of, and yet it is a treasure. Would you help us to pay much closer attention to the things we have heard in your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.